This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. It was a very humbling experience. You take something that's so yours and you make it into ours. It wasn't a struggle to get everyone to understand. The struggle was to know when to hold back. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, I have to ask, I'm going to be traveling to the UK soon, so so mm-hmm. I want to know, how many minutes of daylight do you currently uh, have over there? Because I hear it's very few. Uh, about 45, somewhere between uh, 11.55 and 12.37, uh, yeah. So like everything else in your country, the sun is going on strike. <laughs> uh, June, normally I would ask you whose voice we heard at the top of the show, but come on, let's not BS a BSer. <laughs> I know who that is. It's the wonderful Taffy Brodesser Ackner. We probably don't need an excuse to talk to her, but uh, what was your excuse this time? So part of it was, of course, that I know from your having spoken with her on working back in July 2020, that she's a spectacular guest. But my excuse this time around was that her novel, Fleischman is in Trouble, has been adapted for television on FX Hulu. And Taffy was both the screenwriter for seven of the eight episodes and the showrunner. And that's such an unusual and honestly kind of inspirational trajectory that I wanted to hear what that was like for her. Amazing. And I believe we have a little something extra in the stocking for the Slate Plusketeers this week. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So as I was preparing for the interview, I read that Taffy has written another novel. I'm angry about this. Which will be out next year. I mean, and I just wondered how and when. And I have to say that her answer was really moving and gets to the core of her work, I think. Yeah, I will say, I think that you're going to find when you listen to it uh, that it is an all-time Slate Plus segment. And if you are already a Slate Plus subscriber, you will have that waiting for you at the end of this week's episode. All right, now let's listen in on June's conversation with writer Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. Taffy Berdessa Akna. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, June. It's so great to be here. Well, I really wanted to talk with you because A, you're an amazing guest, and also it's not fair for Isaac to have all the fun, but mostly... Agree. Yeah, right. Mostly because not content with being America's best celebrity profile writer, you wrote a best-selling novel, Fleischman is in Trouble, which has just become a TV series, which you wrote and were showrunner of. So. Yes. Before we begin, did you have any hesitations about adapting your own book? No. The decision for me was I really liked my job at the Times, and I wanted to just keep doing it. But every time I spoke to people about adapting it, we had writers who wanted to adapt it, and I would get jealous. And then I finally met my producing partners, Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant. And they 
they said that there was no way anyone else could write it. And that sort of, I mean, I'm as needy and petty as any writer. And I immediately agreed. And and I really had such great partners that I did not ever feel like I, like the stakes, which were very high because there's so much money involved in television mm-hmm. and so many people, I didn't feel like anybody would let me fail. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I felt amazing. that I also felt that I would get fired <laughs> if I wasn't doing a good job, not by yeah, my producing yeah, yeah. partners, but like they would bring on somebody or they would never stop making it so that it was good enough. Like mm-hmm. I, TV is very collaborative in that way. Yeah, yeah. And the stakes are financially very high. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the writing process. What was it like to take something that you'd created in one format and effectively, or maybe you disagree, rewrite it for another? I mean, how long did it take? What was the biggest challenge that you faced? The biggest challenge was that, I'll go backward. The biggest challenge was that I'm so reliant on words that I had very little faith in interpretation at first, right? Like I'm so used to just a page with words on it. But then what happens is you bring in people to interpret your words, directors, actors, and then production designers. You hire people who are great and seem to understand what you're going for and seem to like your material, but they also have a vision. And so I, at first was very conservative and there was a lot more voiceover than there is now. There was a lot more. Yeah, I know. And you're like, there's already a lot of voiceover. Um, There's a lot more voiceover. There was a lot more instruction, but then you'll see in the series, if I am lucky enough for you to watch it, that in the fourth episode, that kind of changes because it's the fourth episode that I was writing when we started shooting and suddenly I saw that actually everybody's interpretations made it better. Meaning it wasn't a struggle to get everyone to understand. The struggle was to know when to hold back and when to let people do their thing. And when the thing that I pictured in my head was not actually being executed in front of me to leave room for the possibility that it was better. And mostly it was better. So it was a very humbling experience. You take something that's so yours and you make it into ours. Mm. I mean, the directors, Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton, the actors, like everyone... Yeah, It is an idea I had that a bunch of people took and ran with. The other question you had was about how long did it take? What was the writing process? I got to tell you, I know that this is sort of considered a, like a miracle to get to do this, but it is absolutely harder to write paragraphs that reach the margins of the page that are true that will go out into the world and affect people's lives. Mm. It is much harder than it is to take something that you've already written and figure out how to render it to the screen, especially when you have someone like 
Susanna Grant or Sarah Timberman, like people who are just legends in yeah. film and television who are telling you, and they had to tell me very many times, this is not yet adapted to a visual medium. You are mm-hmm. still relying too much on words. Mm. They helped me fix it. But again, at episode four, I suddenly understood, like in, in the first few episodes, there's so many scenes and there's so much voiceover. And then suddenly you can see the shift when I suddenly understand the power of letting these people all be in a room alone together, just talking or doing. It's so much more than I could have ever written. And by people, you mean Toby Fleischman and I mean, Rachel Fleischman, not Jesse Eisenberg. And- no, I mean Jesse Eisenberg. And oh. I mean Claire Danes. And I mean Lizzie Kaplan and Adam Birdie and Josh Radner and everybody else that watching them was so much more powerful than me commenting on the watching of them, which is what I do, which is what I've always done as a writer. Like there is a through line, like Fleischman is not that different from any of my profiles and the show is not that different from the book. (laughs) That's what I would say that I'm, that I write one way. Just, I just want to take a moment just to provide for listeners who aren't familiar the credits of the two women that you mentioned. Um, I mean, Susanna made Aaron Brockovich, right? I mean, and, yes. <laughs> yeah. So just tell us about those women who you those referenced women. Okay. Early. I would love to talk to you about those women because especially on this particular podcast, which I'm a huge fan of, I have to say that I have never been in an environment with people who are very successful where their ambition doesn't also make them competitive. I I don't know. I've spent now almost three years kind of marveling at it and trying to Mm. imitate it. I'm still someone who would like eat somebody's heart out in front of me um, (laughs) if I thought that they had a better chance at the cover than I do. (laughs) But um, I have a theory that those two, and they, I think they met, maybe on party of five, like that's how far back they go. Sarah Timberman was an executive um, who helped create Dawson's Creek and then all the way to masters of sex and justified. And the two of them, when they came to me, unbelievable on Netflix had just been airing. Mm -hmm. And I was very much in awe of the way they could tell women's stories in a muscular way, not a masculine way, mm-hmm. but a muscular way, in a way that is unyielding and very, very fearless. And when I met them, I remember I went to Los Angeles to spend a week with them, sort of breaking the story in a kind of like makeshift writer's room, just us and a writer's assistant named Julia Griswold. And the way they talked about story, but the way they talked to me, I remember going home not home, to the hotel and calling my husband. And he said, how's it going? And I said, I can't really tell because nobody seems stressed out or nervous. Like I had just come, you know, I worked at the New York Times, but I'd come from a men's magazine where like they would use war language to talk Mm -hmm. about progress. Like you're killing it, you're crushing it. (laughs) Like you're referring to something that's in an episode of the show, right? I worked at a men's magazine, the only place I ever wanted to work. Killed it. I loved it there. I'm like, I recognize that. Yes, you do recognize that. But (laughs) but I only knew how to seek approval 
And I've had great editors and probably it was something in me that was a little broken that had come through. Like I was a terrible student. I was a terrible, I really did not know what my future would be. I started out at soap opera magazines. I was fired from soap opera magazines. Like I I kind of thought of myself as a 'er ne'er-do-well so that by the time I made it into prominent magazines, I was seeking approval from just about anybody who could give it to me which made me very compliant, right? And made me easy to work with. Mm. But when I met them, there was no metric of approval. There was, we are people here and in these hours, this is the work we do. Mm. And there was no idea that you had to suffer to be creative. There was no idea that you could disappoint anybody with a bad first draft And by the way, my editors were never disappointed either. It's just that for the first time I saw with their evenness and their gentleness, also they're not in the news business. I mean, to give my editors credit, they have stress upon them, but they are not in the deadline day after day after day after day business. And it was just a calmer environment than I had ever been in. And when they first called me and we were talking about whether or not it should be a a movie or a TV show. Mm. I said, I want it to be a TV show, but I want to write the whole thing myself. Like, I don't want to be someone who's writing. Oh, I know that sh- like your job as a showrunner is to write over people. I don't want to do that. I don't think that that's my job as a writer. I think the thing I want to do is I want to write. And they said, well, you ha- you get to decide, like, what do you want your life to look like? And for all of the people in my life that I've been so lucky to have who have helped steer my career, I had never heard it put in those terms that your life was your work because it occupies so much of it. So what do you want your life to look like? Do you want to be writing these all day? Do you want to be managing? Do you want to be writing? Like, if you don't want to write over people, well, then you write it yourself. If you want to write it yourself, you'll be working around the clock. I opted to do that. And I don't have any regrets about it. I don't. I look at what is on the screen. And when I say it's good, the only metric I gave to myself was I didn't have to create something from whole cloth. Is this my best version of this book? And my answer is, and I can't believe I'm even saying this out loud. My answer is, I can't think of what we could have done better to put it on screen, to put that book on screen. I don't know if it's good, just the way I don't know if the book is good. And I don't know if it's for everyone, but I know that this is a very valid execution of it. Yeah. You know, as the showrunner, after you had written the words mm-hmm. and you'd kind of handed them off to the the cast and the director, what choices kind of left your hands and your head that you kind of had to, but also wanted to, you know, get the contribution from the actors, from the directors? Like, what was it like to experience them change what you had in mind? So... Jesse Eisenberg, um, they all have a kind of riff on how complicated my sentences are and the structure of them. Jesse would say to me, um, ask me my motivation for this scene. And I'd say, what's your motivation for this scene? He'd say, a (laughs) 40-word sentence. 
that I don't even completely understand or, or something, some, some variation of that. And I don't know if, if it was that that did it, <laughs> but there just wasn't a sense of ad-libbing, which is a shame. It wasn't a rule, but it was a shame because I have to tell you, these were the quickest and funniest people that any ad-lib that did make it in, it was not instead of something I wrote, it was an addition to, or sometimes they would come to me and say, can I say this instead? And it was very kind. It was very kind because I was, again, the least experienced, most lucky person to be on the set that they would ask me that. And 99% of the time, the answer was, oh my God, that's so much better. Um, a great example is in the third episode where Rachel says, you want them to have my great ex expectations life? And he he came to me and pitched this and I still laugh about it. He says, who in expectations, great expectations, are you the street urchin Pip? That's what you want for our kids? Mm -hmm. To be forced into my great expectations upbringing <laughs> in order to give them character? No, 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 thanks. Sorry. I don't need all this character. Who would you be in great expectations, sir? Would you be Pip? Would you be the street urchin Pip? Tommy. Everything he contributed was so, so funny. Everything anyone contributed or said, this doesn't flow, I took. But they were very adherent. Now, the other, the negative part of your question, mm -hmm. not the, not like the sort of inverse of your question, is what decisions did they make? They made all the rest of the decisions. They are very mm -hmm. capable. And they so much were defenders of their characters. Claire would not play Rachel as bitchy as perhaps I would have thought a person would. And Lizzie was a quieter Libby. Mm -hmm. And Adam had a greater sense of pathos than the character is written to have. And Jesse, you know, they all hold their characters very closely. Jesse was the one who understood most that he was the subject of a changing perspective and would often ask, like, what does this mean to you that I'm saying? But they made all the decisions. They are not exactly how I pictured it, but in every single case, they are better. Mm. Mm. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Taffy Brodesser Ackner after this. Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. Just really quick reminder that if you're enjoying this show, don't forget to click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and that way you will never miss an episode. And if you do already subscribe, first of all, thank you. Second of all, maybe you want to leave us a review or a rating on your podcast app to help other people find this show. Also, you know, we love hearing from you. As you might know, we have a new bonus show called Working Overtime, where we really try to address phone calls and emails from our listeners, whether it's a problem you're having, a really cool thing you did, a lesson you've learned, a new kind of guest you'd like to hear us talk to. Uh, just drop us a line at working at slate.com or call and leave us a listener voicemail at 304-933-WORK.
All right, now back to June's conversation in progress with writer, showrunner, guest extraordinaire, Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. I remember when the book came out, I read it and I loved it. And it was the book that had the most kind of... Books are received differently all the time. But typically, the difference is, did you like it, did you not like it? In the case of Fleischmann, there were people who all loved it but who saw it in such a different way. And Mm -hmm. the people who I saw it, who it seemed to me just experienced it in a very different way, tended to be divorced or divorcing guys who thought Toby was the hero. And I did not. Now, actually, having watched the show, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to Toby. And I don't know if it's because I've misunderstood before or that you changed something. But on a large scale, I just wondered, were you reluctant to kind of pin down okay, this is the interpretation. This is my interpretation of the Fleischmanns and the Fleischmann marriage. So I think that when you write something on a page, there is so much negative space around everything that what I left, you filled in what I left out. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the script, there's so much negative space. And that's what I was talking about interpretation. The actors filled in what I left out. I have three or four theories. And and I think Toby is extremely likable. But the experiment and the project of Fleischmann is this very simple thing born of profile writing, which is, is there any way to tell somebody's story without making them sympathetic, right? Like you get, you have criticism so much in recent years of like, the New York Times gets criticized for not covering real America, whatever that is, right? And then you do a profile of a guy who has extreme right-wing beliefs. And people are outraged because to simply tell somebody's story is an act of empathy. You can even be hostile in the story, but to do it is to cause feelings in the reader. So, the, que- the answer to your question is, I think that Toby is a very regular figure. And I think that he is not particularly anything. But he reminds me of a lot of people that I like very much. Mm-hmm. And despite what seems to be obvious, he is the character that is closest to me. You could say that there's a character that's very similar to me and sounds like me and that that might be some sort of subterfuge for the fact that I'm probably more like both Toby and Rachel. So I think that he is, the thing I'll tell you is that it reminds me very much of a a profile of an Israeli chef I once did. His name was Erez Komarovsky. And he said he didn't want to write a cookbook with recipes because food tastes different to everyone at every different time. It depends on what your mood is, what you just ate, what your hormones are doing, what the chemistry, you could make the same recipe over and over. And sometimes you're like, I love the tuna sandwich at this place. Why doesn't it taste the same? I would say you are a little bit marred. A, by the fact that you read the book, right? Like, Mm. it's like a little bit like when you watched Gone Girl. You can't tell if it's a good movie because you already know the thing. Yeah. But also, 
Jesse Eisenberg is a charismatic, likable person in the world. He is very much defined by his most famous performance, which is of Mark Zuckerberg. But he has this really marked lack of vanity that made it so that he did not want to make Toby cuddly because he found validity in who Toby was. And that was that's all you have to do. Everyone deserves a side to their story. So the question you're really asking is about empathy. And anybody who's recently divorced is going to look at Toby and say he is doing the best he can. And also reminds me of when my parents got divorced. And my father would take us every weekend. My father took us every single weekend. And people would say over and over to us, me and my two sisters, I have three sisters now, but I had two sisters at the time. Isn't it amazing that your father takes you every weekend? And we'd be like, I don't know. He's our father. Like, like we are under the impression that we are a delight and that he should want <laughs> to be with us all the time. But this, but nobody ever said, Isn't it amazing that your mother has you for the most grueling part of parenting? And doesn't even get to enjoy you on the weekends, Mm -hmm. doesn't even ever get to take you to a movie, ever take you out to dinner, because there's so much homework to do. And my father, like the world could not hoist him on their shoulders high enough. And the thing I learned from writing profiles, which is the most important lesson I've ever learned, and the, the fiction I wrote wouldn't have been publishable if not for those profiles, is you learn a lot of faith in the reader because human beings have so many contradictions. Mm. How could it be that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is so insecure and defensive and so beautiful and successful and perfect, right? Like she's the person I apply the word perfect to. How could you have two warring aspects of yourself as your main qualities. If I weren't obligated to print the truth, I would never trust that readers would understand that. So it's all about faith in the reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tuffy, I was really struck when you were just talking. I mean, you talk so beautifully about writing profiles as you've done on working as I always love to hear you on long form you speak really fascinatingly about it but I'm always conscious that you I think are one of the people who's most aware of what you can't do you can't be their friends you can't you know you know the rules and it's the rules are about what you can't do yeah you know show running is also kind of about you decide what people can and can't do like was show running about what you can't do in the way that writing profiles is? I'd say no, because on my first profile, which was of Zasha Mamet, I did not know what I couldn't do yet. And this was my first show running experience. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I know about profiles comes from my 10,000 hours, right? Like mm-hmm. the expertise I have about it from doing it so, so often you know, expertise in lowercase e, like, and I, no one's an expert on anything. And, but this is the thing I do the most often. It's the thing I'm perhaps most adept at in journalism. And I learned along the way, this was my first show. And really my experience of it was, I can't believe you can do that. 
I was also in management for the first time, right? Like mm-hmm. I went from being the employer of zero to being somebody in charge, essentially. I mean, there were rules, there are people, we have yeah, a yeah. line producer there, like being at the top of a pyramid for the first time. And that too, I was, I really would, it was like being on a lake that you're not sure is frozen. Like every way you tiptoe, you don't know if it's going to break. And then you're so relieved it didn't. That was my experience of show running and of the management of show running. But I don't have the same thing, at least not yet. Maybe maybe one day, maybe mm. after 50 shows, <laughs> when I am old and you come interview me at my deathbed, I will have the answer to that. <laughs> Well, actually, that isn't like I, I am very aware that that you have said like one of your greatest skills is getting more time than people want to give you, than their handlers want to give you. But yeah. as a showrunner, you're kind of like part of your job is to make decisions that save time. Like that's right. kind of oh your God. like, how was that? Did that make you feel crazy? Terrible. It was terrible. It is every day, no matter how efficiently an assistant director runs a set that's the person in charge of moving things along and scheduling like for in prep they are people who decide which scenes go with which mm-hmm. and then in on set they are people who decide who who move the trains along with their second ad we had incredible first ad's um adam escott for one block and vanessa hoffman for the other and that's their skill is to move things along and make sure everything is running and every contingency is cared for. Suddenly it's raining. Suddenly, you know, somebody got sick. The middle of the night, a positive COVID test. You have to rearrange everything. The thing that was surprising to me, and by the way, when I say it at, at episode four, things start to shift. By episode five, I understand in a new way that the fewer scenes you have in an episode, they could be long, but the fewer times that we all have to move to a different place, set up different lighting, the fewer times that you have to do that, the more the likelihood is that you'll be able to do everything you wanted to do. Mm. The more scenes you have, the more they put the ones that seem less essential at the end of the day. And those kind of, sometimes go by the wayside, Mm -hmm. you know, it started like if it, there is a, you know, a very smart set of rules for people on cruise that the ADs know. And if you hear thunder 30 minutes, you're going inside 30 minutes, we're going inside. (laughs) And the scene in the first, I don't know how many times we tried to get that scene. It's 10 seconds long of Toby passing himself as he had an outdoor hand job on the same block that the Leffers lived, right? There was thunder the first time. There was, I think an actress maybe wasn't available for the reschedule, but I can't remember the details. We finally got, it was like the golden hand job scene that we couldn't get. And at every point, it's like, do you give this up? And something in me was like, 
I cannot. This is like this is the, <laughs> this is the mean, most important hand is, job that ever hand job. Yeah, this is my important seat. And they made it happen. But there was a time where it was there. We heard thunder, and we stayed inside for thirty minutes talking about debating the relative merits of this hand job scene. So <laughs> it was a very very different thing. I was no longer, but I did try to get everything I could. Yeah, I yeah. did say, "Hey, like, what if we?" And I learned, by the way, that you don't ask directors, can we reduce the amount of angles we're doing? They Mm. will tell you, no, like, this is what I do. I don't do Mm. gratuitous things and I'm an experienced director and Mm. you never ask again after Mm. you've Mm. asked that. But mostly everyone was very kind to me for um, what I didn't know. Cool. Are you going to go back to writing profiles? It seems so. There's part of me that thinks it's the thing I'm best at or the thing that I am most comfortable with like I I just or even just writing magazine stories I just wrote a story for New York magazine an essay about the locations of Fleischman is in trouble Uh it was published yesterday and Chris Bananos was the editor and it was just he's the greatest and it was just so comfortable to be like it was so nice to feel like I knew what I was doing which I can't tell you how long it has been since I felt that Uh uh I never once felt that I knew things were going well for sure until I saw the rough cuts of the episodes. But even then I didn't know what I was doing in the editing room. I didn't know what I was up until today when I'm looking at the final um, special effects shots. Because the show premiered the night before we're speaking. Right. But it doesn't, not every episode gets delivered until mm-hmm. it almost airs. Mm-hmm. We are finalizing, you know, special effects on Libby's smoking shots because mm-hmm. those were not real cigarettes and how to smoke yeah. behave. And I have to make decisions about like, I don't know if the smoke is exactly right, but I know how much it costs to go back and get a revision. And that's the thing you have to keep deciding. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's so much. Wow. Wow. Taffy Berdessa Agner, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Please come again. June, it's such a pleasure. I will. I look forward to being the third repeater. <laughs> so thank you so much. I love this podcast. Up next, Isaac Butler and I will talk more about the problem of character likability, how to collaborate effectively with your colleagues, and more. Stick around. June, I was delighted and quite moved by that interview. And I really always appreciate Taffy's honesty uh, in these conversations. You know, I think I've read a lot of interviews with her. I've conducted one myself and I just really appreciate how honest she is. I want to highlight one thing real quick as an acting nerd, (laughs) which is uh, the point she made about Jesse Eisenberg's performance as Toby, which is that when you find validity in the character... You don't have to worry about making them too ingratiating to the audience. I think there's a real lesson there that doesn't just apply to acting. I think it really applies to writing as well. You know, you uh, and, and it's not just fiction. It's it's nonfiction, too. You have a lot of human subjects in the book that you're working on. They're real people. They're complicated people. They might sometimes do things that we don't personally approve of or whatever. Yeah. Do you think about the likability uh, question in your manuscript, both in terms of whether you like the person or not and what you want the reader's feelings about them to be? 
Isaac, I think about that constantly. So uh, for any listeners who aren't aware, my book is about kind of archetypal lesbian places, places like bars, bookstores. And the chapter that I've worked on most recently is about lesbian land. Uh, Those are the rural communities that women established starting in the 1970s, inspired by, kind of part of the Back to the Land movement. This is like the separatist kind of Mary Daly kind of, okay, great. You know, for the most part, the women who started or joined these communities, they were choosing poverty and pretty much exile because they wanted to create a parallel world where they devoted their energies to each other, to other lesbians, rather than to the patriarchy. Some of these communities still exist. They never really grew. Um, So it's a story of shrinking and stagnating. But the pioneers really fought to build a new kind of society. You know, they, they created all kinds of projects. They developed a spiritual practice. They're good people. But most of them, almost all of them, I would say, are trans-exclusionary. And when I hear them talking about women-born women, I just want to run away personally. But I also feel a responsibility to explain where the ideology came from, why they still feel that way. And, you know, this is also the location that I had the least personal connection with. I'm very much a creature of the concrete. So even without that element, I think I would have been kind of pushing extra hard to figure out their philosophy. But, you know, I have to do that because that's the job. And I think it's not even so much about likability as comprehension. You know, I want, especially I think if I think all the time about young people who will just be kind of alienated by their attitude. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily disagree with them, but I Uh, I mean, that is with the young people, but I I just want them to understand why or where this attitude came from. Mm -hmm. And and so that's it's really a tricky dilemma. Yeah. You know, I I do feel like in nonfiction, you know, our duty is to the truth of the story. Right. Yeah. And so you have to be really clear. You know, there might be someone that that you dislike, but many of the people you talked to loved and was important to them or whatever. And so it's like, you have to portray that and kind of, you know, as Taffy talks about, trust the reader or the viewer that they're going to kind of understand the complexity of what you're going through. You know, that reminds me that when Taffy um, was talking about it, she said this thing that telling someone's story is inherently an act of empathy. And Mm. I think normally when people say this, they get like a a little dewy eyed and (laughs) they're thinking about, isn't it wonderful how stories make us better people? And maybe we should put that on a pillow or something. But Taffy doesn't mean it that way. She's addressing the elephant in the room. Sometimes that is actually a craft problem. You know, we think yeah. about Breaking Bad and all the mm-hmm. trouble that show had with audiences overly empathizing or sometimes identifying with mass murdering psychopathic drug cook Walter White. You know, yeah. how do we escape the trap that readers and viewers, including sometimes ourselves, I'm not exempting myself <laughs> right. from this, seem to fall right. into of mistaking portrayal for endorsement? How do you have empathy without signing off on every choice a character or a subject makes? Yeah. Oh, Isaac, the thing you just described is it just drives me crazy. I just think, come on. Me too. That's why I asked you. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to do better as like consumers not to fall into that trap. But, you know, the, the fact is you can't control how people interpret 
the details that you provide. You know, I'm reminded of something that kind of relates back to your previous question. You know, one time when I was writing about dentistry, I was talking about how one of the reasons that there's a shortage of dental providers in rural communities is that very few dentists come from those communities. So they don't feel at home there. And I told the story of a dentist I know and, and respect a huge amount, who early in her career had been thinking about working in an underserved rural location. But she knew that there would be very few people with degrees there, very few Jews. And she just thought, I think correctly, that she would be incredibly isolated. And I, you know, I, I wrote that. And my editor wrote something like, oh, boo-hoo. And that made me really mad. And I just, you know, I thought he was being incredibly unfair because I thought her point of view was pretty reasonable. She was being honest with me and I was sharing that. But it also, I think, was really important. So the people who will kind of receive it in the same way that I did, you've got to put it in for them. And if some people don't get it and kind of do it, oh, boo-hoo, or oh, my God, Walter White, what a hero. Like, you know, dumb people going to dumb people, right? Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you know, uh, this interview was also a little mini masterclass in, in learning collaboration, I think. You know, I love the part where Taffy talked about ambition without competition. It's possible, it really is possible, to have the former without the latter. Ambition yeah. and competition are not the same thing. And collaboration benefits from ambition a lot more than it usually benefits from, from competition. And, you know, another part of that collaboration is learning to trust your collaborators. Mm. You know, not only just they're not a bunch of psychopaths out to sabotage <laughs> you or whatever, but also just that they know how to do their jobs. They actually know that just like you may know how to do your job better than them, they know how to do their job better than you, and their <laughs> jobs are different, and you can lean on them. You know, actors are going to bring unexpected things to line deliveries. Directors know what shots they need to get so that when you get into the editing room, you'll have a, a scene. When you're working with talented, competent people, sometimes you need to just give them the space to do what they know how to do. Uh, you know, side yeah. note, caveat, the problem is when you're working with someone who you have some problems with or differences of opinion on what those mean, and then you have to manage that. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. But when you're yeah. working with good people, you know, learning how to give them space to do their work, even when at first it makes you very nervous, you know, because you haven't seen the end result yet. Yeah, really, really yeah. tricky. Um, yeah. A lot of collaboration goes into the work you did at Slate over the years, probably a lot more than is currently going on in, in writing yes, your book. Yes. Was this a thing yeah. you needed to learn how to do? Did it come easily to you? You know, for people who are maybe earlier in their career when it comes to collaboration, what advice would you give them in, in practicing the habit of mind that is trusting other people? So, okay, uh, my answer is going to be on a little bit of a, a sidetrack from that. Um, one of the things that I learned actually is that, like many things, um, one of the secrets to collaboration is to be honest. You know, you have to, you're, you have to be committed to you know, figuring out what can you do to make this as good as it can possibly be with the resources that are available. But then on top of your skills and your relationship and, and doing whatever it is that you can do to kind of get on the same page as the person, there's an element of performance. And, and you know, yeah. maybe this is just that I've had a lot of uh, conversations with uh, writers who are like, my editor didn't do anything, you know, I just don't feel like they they drew it. You know, people often want to like, 
they want to suffer a little bit. Um, and so I think it's almost easier to win someone's trust if you're being really critical of a project or if you're really asking them to make big changes, you know, do more reporting, take a different approach. That doesn't necessarily make people happy, but there's a sense that, you know, oh, yeah, you know, this the vision is there. And, you know, if I do a lot more work, it's going to get a lot better. And, and you know, sometimes that's the case. And sometimes, though, the work is already good and you, you don't really need them to make a ton of changes. And in that particular case, you have to, A, prove to the person that you are Re that you really engage with it, you know, that you really studied it, that you really thought about it. And even if you don't want them to do much, you have to kind of show your work. And, you know, even when you're praising it, you kind of have to just show all the work that you've done. The worst thing that you can do is just kind of make it seem like you're just saying, yeah, yeah, that's great. No notes. Like just demonstrate all the thought that you've done. Does that make any sense at all? That makes total sense to me. And also, you know, part of being a collaborator that is actually a comfort, which she discusses as well, yes. is uh, trusting that your partners will tell you when something doesn't work. You yes. know, that like, like, I mean, to give an example, you know, Dan Coyce and I have done a lot of work together. You know, he edited me at Slate. We edited each other when we were doing The World Only Spins Forward. You know, he's a very hands-on editor. So I know yeah. if he doesn't give me notes on something that it works. Or if I'm yeah. worried that it doesn't work, I can just ask him. And yeah. some of that is you figure that out over the course of a relationship. But also, particularly if it's a project with serious money at stake, you know, they're not going to let you fall on your face just to be nice. Uh, if anything, the opposite. Yeah. Um. I am definitely going to take with me this question about creative work. You know, you get to decide what you want your life to look like. Yes. That was absolutely key to my transition from directing to writing. I wanted to have a kid and I didn't want to be out of town all the time. And, and that was yeah. part of what I wanted my life to look like. And I'm going to guess that had something to do with your recent move to Scotland and transition to part-time employment, you know, at Slate so that you could finish your book. When you do creative work, hate to tell you this, listeners, the hours often suck. The pay <laughs> is often even worse. But you do have more agency than you sometimes think to decide what you want your relationship to that to be. I mean, did, did that quote speak to you? What's been your experience of it? Yeah, no, totally. It really resonated for me, too. I mean, it depends where you are in your life, but... Taking time to ask questions about what you're doing with your is it your wild and precious life, right? Or, uh, or as working listeners know, your four thousand weeks. Exactly, exactly. I mean, just when you get up in the morning, you know, to think, is this how I want to spend my weekdays? Uh, that can be really clarifying and and useful. And ask yourself, are there things that you've wanted to do that you haven't gotten to do? You know, it could be writing a book, but it could be a trip you want to take. It could be having a child. It could be moving. It could be opening a restaurant or starting a business. Some of the things have to happen at certain points in your life, of course, which is a factor. But the more information you can figure out about the path you're considering, what would you miss if you made a change? What would you find exciting? What scares you? What do you anticipate being the most challenging part? I just think the, the more of that that you can at least ask yourself, the better. And to be clear, you know, things don't always work out. Your podcast could get six downloads. Your book might not find a publisher. Your right. restaurant could close. Um, but you can't be it if you don't dream it. Am I right? Yes. <laughs> 
Okay, so before we go, we do have one more segment this week. June, you recently had a wonderful conversation (laughs) with our co-host Karen Hahn about the creative challenges of gift giving. I did indeed. And we didn't just talk about giving. We talked specifically about what to get the creative people in your life. So listeners, we hope you enjoy this special holiday segment brought to you by Best Buy. Karen, let's talk about something that is a big part of the holiday season, gifts and gifting. Are you a good gift giver? Are you one of those people who takes pride in finding the perfect item for everyone on your list? I absolutely am. I love giving (laughs) gifts. I start thinking about them a few months before December, to be honest. But the big problem is that once I actually have them in hand, I have a lot of trouble waiting until the holiday season to actually give them to their intended (laughs) recipient. Like, I'm always like, oh, like, can I just give you your Christmas gift early? Like, I just want you to see it because it's so great. Um, What about you, though? Are you a gifting genius? I have to ask before I answer that question. Have you ever had to buy an extra gift because you've given it to Ellie and you're like, oh, man, I yeah. just got to buy something. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> oh, man, you got to get the timing right. I know. Oh. It's so hard. Oh. So am I a gifting genius? I would just say I have my moments. I mm-hmm. don't have to buy for many people. And I have a sort of repertoire of go-to gifts for several of my regular recipients, like stationery for my partner and, uh, you know, now I think of it, stationery for my mom. Um, <laughs> a lot of stationery. Tell you what, though, I am absolutely amazing at buying gifts for myself. Mm. I recently made a purchase that was inspired by our co-host, Isaac Butler, who recommended mm. a laser printer for anyone who writes and shares their work. Hmm. I got one and it has really genuinely improved my productivity. I've found that it really helps to have a physical version of my work when I'm revising stuff that I've written or even as I'm collecting my thoughts together to write, you know, a first draft just to make sure I don't miss anything. Mm-hmm. Totally highly recommend Are you much of a self-gifter? Does it count if I would categorize it more as like retail therapy? (laughs) Totally, totally. (laughs) I definitely like buying things for myself, both in terms of things that will be practical for work and also things that I just want, like a set (laughs) of cute stickers or a nice sweater. Um, I will say like we also have a laser printer and in our household and also find it very, very useful. Although my partner is much more conscious about like using paper. So like there was one time where we were kind of like marking up a script that we'd worked on and I was like, let's print out two copies and we'll do it. And we printed out one and he was like, let's only do one. And then I'll look (laughs) on my computer and I was like, well, why are we doing this then? But I understand we should save paper. Um, I know. I know. (laughs) I do feel a bit guilty about that. Yeah. Yeah, but it is different. It it, it feels is. different. I feel more productive when I have it physically. Yeah. That said, do you have any other gift ideas, especially for people with a creative practice? So this is a little bit tough because mm-hmm. it's hard to make the match. But I think that software can be a really powerful aid to creativity. Um A lot of the kinds of programs that are designed to help people be more productive, uh, writing software or note-taking apps or research tools, they've switched to a subscription model and, you know, the cost of those subs can mount up. Now, I understand why that model is appealing and necessary for indie software developers, 
But at the same time, we all have limits on how much we're able to cough up for tools yeah. that we don't like need. But just because we don't need them doesn't mean that they can't be really helpful. So mm-hmm. I would say like if you spot your partner in life or writing or, <laughs> you know, composing, whatever, watching YouTube videos about a particular app or program, like get them a one year sub to that. Mm-hmm. app or program it probably won't transform their creative process but it surely won't hurt either and there's a decent chance that it will at least kind of give them a chance to be excited about going and sitting at their computer to just kind of mess around with the software and yeah. you know, that can get you in the mood to you know do whatever it is that you do um so i have a slightly different question for you, Karen. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for products that kind of get you through holiday stress? Ooh, products is a tough one um, mm. because I think my answer would usually be much more kind of metaphysical. <laughs> I think a big <laughs> thing is to make sure that you have something to look forward to, whether it's mm. a holiday trip or a solo trip after all of your family obligations are taken care of. Um, that said, I think it's also useful, like, this isn't like a product endorsement so much as like a, a little buy yourself a gift endorsement. Like mm. if you've come to the end of something that's really tough, like buy yourself the thing that you've been looking at. Like, why not? No one else is going to buy it for you. Although maybe they will if they're a very <laughs> observant person in your life. Um, but yeah, like don't be afraid to give yourself a little gift if you have the leeway to do it. Like find something that'll brighten up your day, whether it's small or big or material or immaterial, like just having something that'll make you a little happier or be a light at the end of the tunnel will be helpful. Yeah, that's also a great way to change a habit that you want to, you know, reframe is mm-hmm. to, you know, set yourself some rewards that yeah, like incentivizing. You... <laughs> exactly, exactly. I just want to make a plug for kitchen appliances that will do their magic while you're in another room writing or drawing or whatever it is that you Mm -hmm. like to do. I'm thinking of like a slow cooker or a device that, I don't know, maybe it's just popular in the UK, but it's known as a soup maker. Uh, Is that different from like an instant pot or a hot pot? I think basically it's yet another form of slow cooker. Gotcha. Um, But yeah, I think anything like that, that you can kind of set it and almost forget Mm -hmm. it it gives you time to focus on your creative work but then supplies you when you're ready to come up for air with something warm and comforting that can fuel you to do more work in your next session Uh, and also before we go I must recommend books as gifts especially two of them that are very near and dear to working Karen's (laughs) book Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema, out November 22nd. And, of course, Isaac's book, Isaac Butler's book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which came out in February. Both are fantastic. Both will inspire you. Both will put you in a creative mood and make you really happy, which we all need at this time of year. (laughs) Thank you, Karen, for uh, sharing uh, some advice. I already feel so much more relaxed about holiday gift giving. Thank you, June. This has been very fun. And don't forget, shop great deals on gifts now at Best Buy. 
June, that was such a fun conversation. And listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's show. If you have, please don't forget to subscribe and or rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And yes, one last time, maybe you should think about subscribing to Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus, where you can get all sorts of bonus goodies, great extra segments, whole secret episodes, access behind the paywall. It's, it's so much good stuff. And... You get to rest easy at night knowing that you support everything we do here at Slate, including the stuff we do right here at Working. You can get a subscription for yourself or for a friend or loved one as a gift this holiday season at Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thank you to our amazing guest, Taffy Bredessa Ackner, all-time great guest. It was a blast to have you on the show. Once again, come back soon. Our producer is the astonishingly talented Cameron Drews, who keeps us out of trouble week after week. Join us next week for a special holiday encore edition. But I promise you, it really will be special. Until then, get back to work. Hey, Slate Plus listeners, thank you so much for your membership. We really appreciate your support. Here's a little something we recorded just for you. So when I was reading, I saw that you have another novel coming out yeah, in 2023. Out. Oh, my goodness. Um, which I believe is called Long Island Compromise. Yes. Like, when on earth did you write that? And was it before or after your work on the TV Fleischman? What can you tell us about it? Do you want to hear the story of that book? I do. Okay. So I might cry when I'm oh. telling it. It's okay. But it's okay. I always cry. As everyone knows, I always cry. Um, so in 2014, we were living in New Jersey and we were renting a house in a state where the rental laws favor the landlord because that's New Jersey and realized that because of various things that were going on with that situation, we had to buy, like it would be cheaper for us to buy a house than to keep paying this rent and also dealing with the things we were dealing with. And I decided there has to be some sort of way to do that. We had, you know, we had just moved to New Jersey. We were totally tapped out. And I had a story that I had wanted to do for a long time about the U.S.'s only male synchronized swimmer and the discrimination he was experiencing because it's a widely female sport and they don't let men into the Olympics. And I thought it was an interesting way to tell the story of discrimination. I went to GQ, I went to the New York Times magazine, and none of the, they didn't like it enough. And then I went to ESPN, the magazine, where they have a bigger budget. And they were like, they're so interested in a sports story. Megan Greenwell assigned it to my great, great luck and sent me to Russia for the FINA World Championships. And it was the first time I had ever left my children. I left them for 14 days. And my older son was so upset about it. He was, I think, seven. And he was so sad about it. And his 
tears stayed with me during this trip. And there was, sorry, there was this, there was this song that was playing everywhere at the time, including in Russia, that went, um, that he loved, that he would sing in the song, but it went, it's been a long day without you, my friend. <laughs> and I'll tell you more about it when I see you again. It's been a long day without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. We've come a long way from where we began. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. When I see you again. I'm sorry. Enough. <laughs> I'm crying on the working podcast. <laughs> and everywhere I went, I'd hear it and I would start crying. And I went back to my hotel room and I said, I'm going to write something that I could sell so that I could get ahead. And I started writing Long Island Compromise. And it's very much a story about this sort of disappearing middle class. It doesn't sound very novel. It's not a, it's, it's a novel, <laughs> but it's very much about the conundrum of being someone who doesn't have money, who doesn't come mm -hmm. from money, who, who doesn't have much to lean on in that department. Yeah. And I wrote the first 30 pages. I had an agent at the time who didn't like it very much. I put it away and I figured maybe I'm just like a profile writer. I came back. One day I wrote the first 30 pages of Fleischman. Oh my God. I sent it to that agent two years later, maybe. Mm. And that agent was like, I don't know. I, I like, And I realized that the problem was that the agent really didn't maybe didn't like my stuff that much because I really liked Fleischman. Yeah. Yeah. I met my agent, my beloved, beloved agent, Sloan Harris, and who, who was his assistant who also became my agent, but no longer as she's left agenting Heather Karpis. They read the first 30 pages of Fleischman. They loved them. And I said, I'd also tried to write this other thing. And I showed them the first 30 pages of that, and they liked it just as much. <laughs> and so after I sent Fleischman in, because I'm very, very, very afraid always of what my next work will be. And also, it's very hard for me before things come out. Like, this past few weeks has been really hard for me. And I'll tell you, a thing that I've learned to do is, have you ever had Tony Scott on this podcast? No. A.O. Scott? Not yet, no. He you he should be your next phone call. He um he wrote a book called Better Living Through Criticism, mm -hmm. and it's about the validity of all attempts at art. It's really about criticism, but what I mm -hmm, read mm -hmm. in it is that no matter what you've done, the attempt was perfect. Maybe mm -hmm, not the execution, mm -hmm. but the attempt mm -hmm. was perfect. Mm -hmm. And I read it almost superstitiously now, after every like when I'm waiting for things. Mm -hmm. But before I did that. I would just start on my next thing. And so while I was waiting for Fleischman to come out, I wrote Long Island Compromise. Wow. I'm, I'm still revising it. 
I'm a very fast first draft writer, mm-hmm. but I'm still revising it. Mm-hmm. And it's been a nice thing not knowing how this television show will turn out, not knowing what my future is, mm-hmm. not knowing how many podcasts I would be crying on. <laughs> it is a very nice thing to have your head down yeah, yeah. and looking ahead. And there's another, actually, if you have a minute, a no, really good, <laughs> a really good reason for that. And that is because... In my experience, when you have a failure, when you have a success, it taints the next thing you do. It like either paralyzes you, it makes you want to replicate it. If it was a success, it makes you too much in your head about why it was Mm -hmm. a failure. And you can't Mm -hmm. be like that as a writer or else you'll just freeze. Mm -hmm. So I always, always, always am on my next thing before the thing comes out. It's the only thing I insist on. Um, I think it made me a very prolific freelancer. I think that was the driving force. Yeah. But that's when I wrote that book. Once again, thanks for your support. We really appreciate your Slate Plus membership. 